the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the message was lost. For the want of a message, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a nail. Details add up quickly. We've probably all been in those kind of situations. But there is a more surefire way to lose a battle. There's a way to guarantee you're going to lose every time. And that is to fail to understand victory. Is to not aim at what actually constitutes a win. If you sit down to play chess and you make your primary goal to keep as many of your pieces alive as possible, you're going to lose because that's not the goal of chess. It may be helpful at certain times in the game to keep your pieces alive, but the goal is to take out the opposing king. And sometimes you have to make sacrifices to do that. If you get into an argument with your spouse and you make the primary goal of that argument to be proven right, you do this regularly over time, it doesn't matter whether you get proven right or not, you're going to lose. In arguments with your spouse, the primary goal is to grow in love, understanding, and unity. Yes, it will be useful to know who's right along the way, but that's not a victory. One of the things I tell people in premarital counseling and often in my wedding sermons is if you win and your spouse loses, you both lost. It doesn't work that way. And so we're going to look today at the battle of Exodus, the war between Pharaoh and Yahweh in Exodus chapters 5 to 10. And the first thing we have to do, if we are going to understand what's going on here, is to understand what victory is. What's the point of this war? What's the point of this battle? And this is a more important question than we know because in this story, the only person who seems to know what real victory looks like is God. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We read the, we, we didn't read, we looked at the first four chapters of Exodus, and I retold that story. And in Exodus chapter 5, in verse 1, Moses is now walking in obedience. He has gone back to Egypt. He has spoken with the people of Israel, and he said, God has sent me to deliver you from Pharaoh and from slavery, and from oppression, and from these awful lives in, that you're living. And the people rejoice. They're super excited. Fair, Moses shows him some of the signs that he's been given, and they're in. They're ready to go. And the beginning of chapter 5, we have the first face-off between Moses and Pharaoh. And so starting in verse 1, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the first five verses of Exodus chapter 5. And we do this to honor the Word of God. It's the best thing you're going to hear today. So, verse 1. Oh, go back one slide. Afterward, so after they've talked to the people of Israel and gotten the support of the elders, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, anytime you see that capitalized Lord, that's Yahweh, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
So I want to put this face-off into perspective. Moses and Aaron are 80 years old and 83 years old, and they come to see Pharaoh. And from Pharaoh's perspective, Moses is a half-crazed, disgraced, exiled, 80-year-old wilderness shepherd turned demagogue. He's not someone you listen to. He's not someone who comes in and commands authority. He has no position, he has no power, and what he's asking for is absurd. Let the national workforce go. Pharaoh, meanwhile, from Pharaoh's perspective, is a god among men. And I don't just mean that he considered himself handsome and rich and good with women. He literally considered himself a god among men. These are the words of Rechmir, the vizier of Amenhotep II. What is the king of the upper and lower Egypt? He is a god by whose dealings one lives, the father and mother of all men, alone by himself, without equal. Pharaoh's divine. He's a son of the gods, possessed of the power of Ra himself, able to incinerate a man with a beam from his forehead. That's what the stories say. Charged with maintaining balance in the universe and holding in his hand the power of life and death. This is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is about to set himself against God, but this is not an accident. It's built into Egyptian kingship theology. And there's this moment in the verses we just read that ought to send shivers down our spines when we know the story and what's going on. Pharaoh's first response to Moses and Aaron is, who is Yahweh that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. That is a bad place to be. And that is the heart of the matter. Now, Pharaoh continues. He's framed this situation very clearly for himself. This is a battle between Pharaoh, God on earth, and the people of Israel led by Moses who want to leave when they're very useful and he wants them to stay. And so he is going to make sure that they stay. So that same day after Moses and Aaron had left, Pharaoh gave his orders to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the Israelites, saying, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Do not reduce their quota, for they are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. So make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to these lies." And so they are put into even more oppressive of a situation. And they, it's impossible. They can't make the same number of bricks in a day without the straw being provided. And, and of course, they fail. And Pharaoh punishes the leaders of the Israelite people for the failure of the whole nation to make enough bricks. Pharaoh is very shrewd. He, is, he, he sees from his perspective what victory is going to mean. It's going to mean that this nonsense stops, that the people get back to work, and that his power is honored and respected throughout the land. And to make that happen, he's driving a wedge between Moses and the leaders of the Israelite people. He doesn't punish all the slaves working in the clay pits. He punishes the Israelite leaders because they're the ones who need to support Moses if this is to go forward. Pharaoh is winning at this point from his perspective and from Moses' perspective. As we get into chapter 6, Moses returns to the Lord and, and he says, Lord, why have you brought this trouble upon your people? Is this why you sent me, to make things worse? 
Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble, and you have not rescued your people at all. God reassures him. He says, I am going to deliver them. The plan hasn't changed. We're going we're to do the same things we've done already. Go talk to Israel and then go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses reluctantly says, okay, fine. And he goes and he talks to Israel again. And you have these heartbreaking words at the end of Exodus chapter 6. They were the ones, or sorry, now when the Lord spoke to Moses, uh, wait, I got to find it, sorry, I might just have to tell you. Oh yeah, sorry, not the end, the beginning. Moses goes back to the Israelites, he reports to them all that the Lord said, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirits and cruel oppression. Again, Pharaoh's one. They can't hear the words of hope anymore. Pharaoh try, or Moses tries to tell them again, God is going to deliver you. The first time he comes with this message, they're super excited, but now things have only gotten worse. He tries to repeat it, and, and we're literally told, like, they are despairing, they're broken-spirited, they're in such cruel oppression, they can't hear him anymore. And this is when Moses says, and, or when God says, go talk to Pharaoh again. And Moses says, if the Israelites haven't listened to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And then he says, I told you I'm not a good speaker. Implication being, of course, that if God, you had really made me a good speaker, this wouldn't have happened. At every step of the way, Moses is putting this back on God because Moses feels the loss. He feels like Pharaoh is winning. Thanks be to God, the battle does not belong to Pharaoh or Moses or either of the peoples. The battle belongs to the Lord. And the Lord is just getting started. And he is about much more than we think. So he repeats to Moses, go to Pharaoh. We're, we're, we're going to get this battle started. And in Exodus chapter 7, Moses obeys. He goes back to Pharaoh. God says, you are to say everything I commanded you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. He won't listen to you, and I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment, and I will bring out my people, the Israelites. And when I do that, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And that's what the battle is about. It's not about the political power and military power and oppressive power of Pharaoh. It's not even just about getting Israel free though that, of course, is important. It's about then you shall know that I am the Lord. That's victory. And if you don't understand that, you can't understand any of the details that follow. The Lord sets out so that Pharaoh will know, and Egypt will know, and Israel will know, and you too, Moses, will know that I am the Lord. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 10, Moses is being commanded by the Lord to recount these details and tell all the people of Israel to recount this story so that your children and your grandchildren and their children will know that I am the Lord. God is not daunted by Pharaoh's refusal. He knows where the real power lies. In a battle between the God Pharaoh and the God Yahweh, Pharaoh's brought a Twinkie to a tank battle. Like, there's no contest. But the point of this story is not just for, for Yahweh to overpower Pharaoh. 
If that was the only point, why are there 11 signs? Why not just one? Why not just God coming in with overwhelming power the first time, totally destroying the Egyptians and the Israelite people go free? End of story. Just like that. Because that's not the point. The point is that they will know. And so God sets about displaying his judgment in 11 miraculous signs. And we're going to look at the first 10 of them today because the last one stands alone, the death of the firstborn. Aaron's staff becomes a snake, the Nile becomes blood, frogs, gnats, and flies fill the land, disease attacks the livestock, and boils attack the people, hailstorms, locusts, and then for the penultimate sign, the tenth sign, darkness so thick you can feel it covers the land for three days. And those, that's the outline of these ten signs, but the Lord is in the details in this story. And so the story of the Exodus battle in Exodus 7 to 10 invites us to pay close attention, to, to really look at the details. And it does this by the, by the placement of, of really clear structures that then highlight what doesn't follow the structure. So let me tell you what I mean. I said there's 11 signs. There's an introductory sign and a concluding sign. The introductory sign is Aaron turning his staff into a snake before Pharaoh and his court. The concluding sign is the one we'll talk about next week. In between that, there are three sets of three signs, and they're very structured. The first one of each set of three is introduced in exactly the same way all three times. Go to Pharaoh as he comes down to the Nile River in the morning and tell him these things. The second sign in each set of three is introduced in exactly the same way. Go to Pharaoh, and then there's no other details about that, and tell him about this sign. And the third sign in each set of three is introduced in exactly the same way. There's no warning. God just does it. Every single one of these nine ends in the same way with a reference to Pharaoh's heart. So you've got these three sets of three. You also have pairings. So the first two, the Nile turning into blood and the frogs, come out of the Nile. The Nile is in the first two. The second two are about swarming insects, gnats and flies. The third two are about pain in the flesh, diseased livestock and boils on the people. And the fourth two are about um, crop destroyers, hailstorms and locusts that come and are specifically noted for destroying the various crops of Egypt. And the last two are about death. And so with that structure in place laid out for us, the, the point of that, the reason you do that in a narrative is because now you're primed to notice the things that are going on that aren't part of that structure. You're primed to notice the progression that takes place within the structure, and you're primed to notice the disruptions, the things that are like, oh, that's new, what's going on? And it's in that that God reveals who he is. So we begin in the courtroom. Moses and Aaron come, and they're declaring the power of God. And Pharaoh is again basically saying, like, who's Yahweh? Why should I care? And, and Aaron casts his staff onto the ground, and it becomes a serpent. And Pharaoh says, ah, yeah, okay, nice trick. And he calls out his magicians, and they do the same. Several of them cast their staffs on the ground, and they become serpents. And Aaron's serpent devours the serpents of the magicians. Now, what's important to note here is that in a contest of power between Pharaoh and Yahweh, the serpent is the symbol of Egyptian power. On Pharaoh's crown, on the front of it, is a serpent right up here. 
Because within Egyptian mythology, serpents represent the power of Ra. Every morning as the sun goes across the sky, what's happening is that Ra is riding his chariot, pulling the sun, and riding in front of him are two serpents who spit fire out of their mouths, clearing the way for him to go. And that's the power that Pharaoh supposedly possesses, is the power of these serpents that ride in front of the god Ra, the sun god Ra. So when, Mo- when God sends Moses and Aaron with a snake that devours the Egyptian snakes, he is symbolically displaying the entire war that is about to come. Pharaoh is going to keep trying to display his power, and God is going to keep beating him at his own game. This is, this is what's going to happen in every single plague all the way to the end. But Pharaoh doesn't believe. His magicians have duplicated the feet. His heart is confident. He will not let the people go. And so we go to the second blow in this battle, the second sign, as the Nile becomes blood. And the second sign is the first one that's public. Up until this point, everything that Moses and Aaron have done has been either before the Israelite people or in the courtroom of Pharaoh. The Nile becoming blood is something everybody sees and experiences and suffers from. But again, the magicians can duplicate the feet. They can turn water into blood as well. And so Pharaoh turns away and he will not listen. And the second sign passes. The third sign comes and there are frogs teeming and pouring out of the Nile, filling the land. There's frogs everywhere. And this begins to get to Pharaoh. For the first time, he comes to Moses and says, okay, pray for relief and the frogs. And you might wonder why. Why frogs? It was Pharaoh's job as God incarnate on earth to maintain the balance of the universe, to make sure all of the parts were still working properly. That was what the stories said. Now, what's actually going on from the perspective of the true God of the universe is that Pharaoh is taking credit for the work of Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who maintains balance. The creator of heaven and earth has created the earth in such a way that there are certain amounts of balance. The picture of frogs teeming out of the Nile is a picture of life out of control. Because the other thing about Egyptian mythology is that in Egyptian mythology, frogs are worshipped as the source of the breath of life. They're the creatures that breathe life into all of the other creatures. And so this is, for all of Egypt to see, Pharaoh failing in his duties. He's no longer maintaining balance. For the first time in these signs, in the third sign, it's beginning to look not just to Moses and to the people who believe God, but to everybody, like, something's up here. And so Pharaoh calls Moses, says, pray for relief. And Moses, almost tongue-in-cheek, says, you know, to you, O great Pharaoh, I give the honor of deciding when I do this. Tell me when I should pray to relieve you of these frogs. And, And it's incredible because Moses, or Pharaoh, sits on his throne having heard Moses' request. And do you know what his answer is? Tomorrow. Pray tomorrow. Like one more day of frogs, please. We'll live through one more, and tomorrow you can make them go away. Part of what's being revealed in these stories, in these signs as we go through, is not just the character of Yahweh, but the character of Pharaoh. And these two things are always inextricably bound. There is no knowledge of God apart from knowledge of self. Here we see Pharaoh's stubborn pride. At this point, we suspect that Pharaoh is never going to gain in. Who says tomorrow to that kind of question? 
Like, I'm suffering terribly, Lord. Please help me. Sure, when would you like me to help you? Tomorrow. That's why I'm praying now, after all. Moses prays the next morning, and all the frogs die. Now think about that. These sources of life worshipped in Egyptian mythology. At the word of Moses, at the power of God, they all die. And we're told that they, that they piled them up in heaps that stank across the land. This symbolism is so powerful you can smell it. But Pharaoh rallies himself after his moment of weakness in calling Moses to pray, and he again will not listen. And so we come to the next sign. Moses raises his staff over the dust of the earth, and the dust turns into to gnats that cover the land. A torment, to be sure. And this time, for the first time, we're told that Pharaoh's magicians cannot duplicate this sign. Not only that, when they can't duplicate the sign, they turn to Pharaoh and they say to him, this is the finger of God. The magicians are the first ones to know that Yahweh is the Lord. But Pharaoh still will not listen. Now we're four signs in. We've had the introductory sign and the first set of three. And what comes next is the beginning of the second set of three, as Moses calls up swarms of flies to spread across the land. And there are two big changes in this sign as we head into this second set of three, into sign number five. It's the first sign described as doing damage. Now, the other signs previous to this, they wouldn't have been fun, okay? Make no mistake. The Nile turning into blood and frogs everywhere, and then they stink and gnats swarming across the land. Like, they're not things you would wish on people. But none of them are described as actually causing harm. When the Nile turns to blood, they're still able to dig for their water. When the frogs come across the land, they're not there for long. They die. They get piled into heaps and taken care of. The gnats swarm around, and they're annoying, but that's all gnats are. They're annoying. The flies come across the land, and we're told that the land is ruined. And there's a couple things to note here. God has given them four chances, four symbolic acts of his power to understand and repent before he's actually caused any harm. And then, right as he begins causing damage, he also begins to make a distinction between the Israelite people and the Egyptian people. The flies only swarm across Egyptian land. The land of Goshen, where the Israelites are settled, is free of them. As if to say, now that damage is coming, only the people who are being stubborn and refusing to listen will suffer. The Egyptians will suffer, but not the Israelites. This sign also finds Pharaoh relenting and claiming that he will let the people go. He tries to bargain with Moses, he says, you can do this, but not that, and the other thing, and you can go, but not your women and children, and putting all kinds of limits. Pharaoh's not ready to let go of his power, but he is willing to give concessions for the suffering to stop. And so Moses says, okay, and the flies leave. And as soon as the flies leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He will not let the people go. And as we keep walking through these next signs, they become progressively more destructive. Next comes disease upon the livestock, which kills many of the Egyptian animals. And this time, Pharaoh checks to see if God is really making a distinction between the Egyptians and the people of Israel. And of course, he finds out it's true. God hasn't lied to him, but he hadn't checked yet. 
He still won't let Israel go. And so God moves closer to home, inflicting boils, painful boils on the flesh upon all the Egyptians. So much so that we're told not only can the magicians not duplicate this sign, they can't even stand before Moses and Aaron. The powers of Pharaoh are being routed, but Pharaoh will still not let the people go. And what we see in this sign is that for the first time, God is getting involved with Pharaoh's heart. One of the things that if you read this narrative, you find out is that at the very beginning, God has told Moses that he will be hardening Pharaoh's heart. But then as you read the story, and I told you every one of these signs ends with a reference to Pharaoh's heart, what you find for all of them up until the disease or the boils are inflicted upon the Egyptians is that either Pharaoh's heart, most translations label this all as hardened, Pharaoh's heart is hardened or Pharaoh makes his own heart hard. In this sign, we're told that Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart. And for some people, this is a really bothersome part of this narrative. What does it mean that Yahweh is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Like, this sounds like a very strange thing for God to do. And so I want to explain this for just a minute, because I don't like dodging the difficulties in the text. The heart in Hebrew is not like the heart in English. We think of the heart, we think of emotions. In the Hebrew scriptures, there's no word for mind. It's all in the heart. The heart is the organ of the intellect, the will, the decisions, the emotions, and desire. That all rests in the heart. You know with your heart, you have wisdom in your heart, you desire in your heart, you can be evil in your heart. There's no word for happy in Hebrew either. When someone is described as happy, they're described as being good of heart. Um, So all of these things are going on in the heart. And so what you have to pay attention to is what's happening to the heart to understand how he's being affected. And Unlike in English, in Hebrew, Pharaoh's heart is described using three words, not one. So most English translations will just use one word the whole time. But there's three in Hebrew. At the beginning and end of the narrative, Pharaoh's heart is described as kasa. And this is the literal word for hard heart. It means stubborn. And we've seen this already. You have to be pretty stubborn to say, pray for me tomorrow. Like, I'm going to maintain that much control that I'm going to pick later. Um, So he's got a stubborn heart. We're told this at the very beginning. It's reiterated at the end, like big surprise. We saw that. Repeatedly throughout the narrative, Pharaoh's heart is hazaked. I know these Hebrew words are weird. You don't have to try to remember them. This is to strengthen or stiffen or make resolute. And the picture is of somebody who really wants to do something, but they're hesitant. And somebody else comes along and says, no, no, it's totally a good idea. And you're like, you're right. I'm going to do it. Um, this is something you, you, other people do to you. They strengthen your will. They, they help you be confident about what you were already deciding to do. This is the word used every time the magicians duplicate one of Moses' feats, one of Yahweh's signs. The duplication by the magicians strengthens Pharaoh's heart. It stiffens it and makes him resolute. Look, it's not just Yahweh that can do this. We can do this too, so why should I let you go? This is the most common description of what is going on with Pharaoh. Um, It is something that Yahweh gets involved in. So at the beginning, it's the magicians. It's something that Pharaoh does to himself. Yahweh gets involved in this as well. And we'll talk about that in a minute. There's a third thing that happens with Pharaoh's heart, and that is that it is made kabod or kabed. It's made heavy. Pharaoh three times makes his own heart heavy. Once it's described as being heavy, and once God makes Pharaoh's heart heavy. Now, what's important to understand about this 
is that making your heart heavy is a statement of judgment. Within Egyptian mythology, when you die, your heart is brought before the gods who place it on a scale, and on the other side of the scale is a feather. And if your heart is lighter than a feather, you have lived a righteous life life, and will be rewarded. If your heart is heavy, you have lived a wicked life and you will be punished. Every time Pharaoh says he's going to let the people go and then changes his mind, he's described as making his own heart heavy. Because even from an Egyptian perspective, for Pharaoh to go back on his word is for him to sin. And Pharaoh will acknowledge this to Moses. He will say, I have sinned in telling you I would let you go and then not actually letting you go. And so when you take this picture as a whole, what you see when the scriptures describe God as hardening Pharaoh's heart are two things. First of all, the point is being made that God is involved at every level of this story. There is no part of this story where God is not in control. There is no part of this story where God is not bringing about good, even from the darkest evil in Pharaoh's own heart. We read this same thing in the New Testament, that God can turn even evil to good for those who love him and are called according to his name. It's not to say that the evil is good. It's to say that God can work even in the darkness to bring about light. God can work even in the evil to bring about good. And that's what he's doing. It is not saying that God is making Pharaoh do something he doesn't want to do. The whole point of hardening someone's heart in the sense of stiffening and making resolute is that they want to do this thing. They're just not sure for a variety of reasons. It's also why this comes after so many signs have already been given. And after Pharaoh has had his heart hardened, made his own heart hard, and made his own heart heavy. Because it's clear at this point that God stepping in as part of this process is not a new, he's not setting a new direction. We're not looking at a Pharaoh who, ah, maybe I'll let the people go. He at no point wants to let them go, and he doesn't. Before the Israelites are freed from Egypt, the land is destroyed, the livestock is destroyed, the crops are destroyed, the firstborn are destroyed, and the army of Egypt is completely destroyed. The only thing that actually lets the people of Israel go is the fact that Pharaoh loses all ability to pursue them. He pushes this until he's got nothing left. And we'll see as we walk through the rest of the signs how stubborn he really is. The other point that's being made here is that God is acting not just in revelation, but in judgment. And these two things also always go together. I said there's no knowing God without knowing yourself. This is true. There's also no revelation without judgment because judgment within Scripture is to see where things really stand, is to understand the truth of what is. God doesn't act in judgment by making something the case that wasn't. When he judges wickedness, it is as much a revelation as a punishment because the wickedness is already a real thing and it already leads to a certain end and that end is death and destruction. And so, Pharaoh, or so, Mo, so Yahweh steps in with Pharaoh and what we're seeing is he's involved at every level. He's a God of justice who judges rightly and brings goodness even out of evil in the darkest hour. Pharaoh sees none of this, though, and he still will not let the people go. The boils pass, and God warns Pharaoh of the coming hailstorms. 
He even tells the Egyptians, and this is a change here as we get into this next sign, that they should get their livestock and possessions and people undercover before this hailstorm comes. Because if they don't, it will destroy whatever they've left outside. We're told that some of the Egyptians feared the Lord and obeyed his word. The magicians knew that he was God, and here, even some of Pharaoh's own officials and people know that Yahweh is the Lord, and they listen. And it's almost like you're seeing, you're seeing draw, lines being drawn among the people of Egypt, and God now not only giving ways out for Israel, but giving ways out for Egypt, because Pharaoh is so stubborn that his own people are suffering because of his pride. This line continues to get drawn as we move into the next sign. Because what we see at the end is that at this point, not only is Pharaoh hardening his heart, some of the officials are doing the same. So you've got half of his court hardening their heart with Pharaoh and half of his court obeying the word of the Lord against Pharaoh. But he still will not let the people go. He does the same tired pattern. He says, I messed up, I'll let you go. The suffering stops, he changes his mind. And we begin the last set of three signs. God sends locusts that come and destroy all the crops that are left. And we were specifically told with the hail that the hail came early in the season so that the barley and the flax were destroyed, but the wheat and the spelt that had not come up from the ground yet were not destroyed. You, you still see this like one step at a time where, where God gives them chance after chance after chance. But when the locusts come, everything is destroyed. And this time, it's not just the officials who fear the Lord. It's all of his officials who are saying to Pharaoh, how long? How long till you give up? How long till you let them go? Don't you see? Egypt is destroyed. There's nothing left. Stop. And the picture is not of some of his officials, like more of them coming to know that this is God. It's, it's them coming to realize it's not worth it. The fight is, it's not worth it. And Pharaoh still will not see. He repents again, but as soon as the suffering is gone, he changes his mind. And so we come to the ninth sign, darkness. The sun itself, the highest Egyptian god, the source of all of Pharaoh's power, is defeated. For three days, darkness so thick that you can feel it, which I can't even imagine, like what kind of description is that, falls across the land. We're told that it's so thick, the people of Egypt are forced to stay where they are for those three days. They can't move around, they can't do stuff, because you just, you can't see anything. Pharaoh's nearly ready to give in but not quite. And this sets the stage for the final sign that we'll look at next week. At this point, 10 signs gone, the nation is destroyed. At every level of symbolism, Pharaoh has been defeated and his power has been overcome. And some of the people know that Yahweh is the Lord. And I want to go back to that. This is the main point of the battle. Then you shall know. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. We see this 
lesson being learned precisely through the battle narratives. The magicians, some of the officials, more of the officials, there's a brief moment where it seems like Pharaoh is almost ready to acknowledge that Yahweh is the Lord of all. And what is revealed of God in this narrative is that he is the supreme Lord of all, he is just, and he is merciful and patient and full of grace. And that last one may surprise you given the destructive power of what we just read, but let me walk through each of them because they're all true for us today as well. He's supreme. There is no power on heaven or earth greater than Yahweh. Not Pharaoh, not Pharaoh's magicians, not the river Nile, not the weather, not the sun itself. Nothing in all of creation stands above or even next to Yahweh. He is just. That is, he does what is right. From a reader's perspective, the moment you see Pharaoh ask for the frogs to go away tomorrow, you kind of know the battle is done. Like, this isn't going to end by Pharaoh repenting. He's bought too deeply into his own propaganda. He's a god. He must defend that view at all costs. And along the way, as Pharaoh defends that view at all costs, God broadens the scope of his mercy because God is focusing what he's doing where it deserves to be focused. And this is exactly where we see his mercy and patience and grace. Think about the very beginning of this story and what we went through last week. Before any of the signs have come, Pharaoh and the Egyptians have cruelly enslaved the entire nation of Israel. A people that once blessed and helped Egypt have now become their unpaid, oppressed servants. When that didn't stop them from multiplying, Pharaoh organizes a statewide infanticide, killing the baby boys of all of Israel. He deserves to be punished. Like, this, this is not a question of, of whether or not there's some kind of right in God fighting back against this. And yet, the first thing God does is have a battle between staff snakes in the courtroom. Like, he doesn't come out of the door guns blazing. He doesn't say, you really do deserve punishment. Here it all comes at once. He gives them 10 chances to repent, each one increasingly clear, before he finally repays them for what they did with the death of their own firstborn. And even then, there are ways provided out for those who will listen. Even as he brings sign after sign on the land, he brings four that cause no lasting destruction, each one increasing in symbolism, each one making the message clearer, each one with the hope that Pharaoh will turn and realize. And so he is incredibly gracious and merciful and patient, even in his judgment. And all of these things we need to remember are true today. Right? That's the final call in these narratives in Exodus chapter 10. Tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt hardly, harshly with Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So that we may know that he is the Lord. I want to speak briefly about two other parts of this. Well, they go together. I said at the beginning that Pharaoh was winning and that if the battle belonged 
to Moses and Pharaoh. It was lost before it even started, but it doesn't. The battle belongs to the Lord. And I think a lot of us need to hear that today, that whatever fight we're in, wherever we're feeling the same way the the Israelites were feeling, the battle belongs to the Lord. And I'm deeply encouraged by God's response to the hopelessness of the Israelites. Moses comes back to them this second time to say, God is going to deliver you, and they can't hear him. They don't. And we're told, we're straight up, it's because they're hopeless. They're despairing. They're broken-spirited. There is so much oppression that they cannot lift their heads to see the light. And God's response is not, I guess we're done. God's response is, no, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you, Moses, you, the Israelites, you, the Egyptians, you, Pharaoh, I'm going to show you who I am. And so if you are here this morning and you are closer to the perspective of those Israelites and I'm telling you things like the battle belongs to the Lord and he's good and he's just and he's merciful and he's patient and he's all powerful and you're sitting there thinking, yeah, sure, it's okay because he's still going to do stuff and he's still really good. And we can get ourselves into this catch-22 where we feel like our hopelessness itself prevents us from walking with and knowing the Lord. Like, well, if I was a really good Christian, I'd be thankful and I'd be hopeful and I would be able to know that he was good even in the midst of these difficult situations. This story wants you to know those things, but it also wants you to know that if you can't, it's still true and God will still act. I hope that's as encouraging to you as it has been to me. God is good, and he is just, and he is all-powerful. And you may be living in the season of the Israelites where you haven't seen that yet, and if that's the case, then my prayer is that you won't be there for long. You may be at the other end of a story like this, and then my my urging, my encouragement, my repetition of the command of God is that you tell that story to yourself and your friends and your children so that you will know that Yahweh is the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Father God, thank you. Thank you that your concern is that we know, that you want us to know you and walk with you, that that's victory, that you seek to turn our hearts to you and to lead us into life and into good things. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.